Broadcasting from an underground bunker 3,500 feet below Dick Cheney's bunker, Air America Radio is on the air. I'm Al Franken, and welcome to The O'Franken Factor. Today is both an ending and a beginning. An end to the right-wing dominance of talk radio, the beginning of a battle for truth, a battle for justice, a battle indeed for America itself. Not to be grandiose. Welcome to the O Franken Factor. No, I'm just kidding. Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Great little uh, ironic intro there. Air it's... America is on the air. And you know <laughs> what? The... And here's my question um, What happened to those WMDs? <laughs> <laughs> Today, for the podcast, we watched a 2005 documentary called Left of the Dial about one of the great kind of footnotes of the George W. Bush era, Air America. It was an HBO documentary from 2005. It was suggested to us by a listener named Will Chapman. Thanks, Will. Perfect fodder for us. It was very up our street. You know, a lot of people probably don't remember Air America um, but I think it's kind of like Jodorowsky's Dune. It was like a star that exploded and influenced everything that came after. Well, you know, uh, those sketches from Jodorowsky's Dune, if you look at them, you know, you can see the designs made it into Alien. They made it into Blade Runner. They made it into all your favorites. And we're here standing on the shoulders of giants. We, we stand on you the know, shoulders of giants. Al like Franken, Maddow. Mark Maron, Janine Garofalo. <laughs> all, so listen, we're going to get to this documentary in a minute. Uh, Luke... I see that you've handcuffed yourself to the table. Well, I just have, I, I don't like to get political, but there's something I wanted to say. I, you know, I did want to use this opportunity to announce uh, my hunger strike, which is now entering, I don't know, maybe it's like 37th minute at this point. <laughs> um, I have not eaten since about halfway through the movie. And of course, that's in solidarity with Laura Loomer and also everyone else who's been uh, shadow banned. If people are listening to this at any time except like within 48 hours of it being posted, this is in reference to the fact that uh, popular right wing internet personality Laura Loomer. Popular is a bit of a stretch, but all right. Uh, she handcuffed, she's more popular than us, you know. Fair. Uh, she handcuffed herself to Twitter HQ <laughs> in protest for having had her account suspended, I believe. Or maybe it's just having her. Uh... Her check marker movie. I think well, actually, I think it's both. Or like, I think I think she might have gotten it taken away, and then yeah, then now like she's off. And this is part of something that has been kind of circulating in the right wing blogosphere this week. I think one or two accounts have, one or two prominent accounts have been banned, and so there are many right wing people on Twitter who are threatening that they will depart the platform in solidarity. Um, Great. I got to say, though, this is a platform that is like built on the outrage of yeah. right wing people and the upset they cause. We can see so why they're yeah. you can see why they're upset, because so much of the right wing. I, I think I think one thing that's not kind of adequately understood when people talk about the alt right, you know, it's talked about as this kind of blanket thing. And the trouble is that it really it really captures uh, everything from, you know, hardened white supremacists to. You know, these people like Laura Loomer, who are... Uh, I once watched, like, a three-hour uh, YouTube broadcast that Laura Loomer was part of, which kind of gave me a, a sense of, like, the, I mean, the types of things she actually does. And, I mean, in, in three hours, there was no real talk of anything to do with politics. It's just all, like, 
drama between these different YouTube personalities. And, um, and she was on some show where it was two guys that were broadcasting, you know, like from with just within their room or whatever, like, and there were, I mean, it had lots of views. So, uh, I guess thousands of people were, were watching this or had watched this, but this is a milieu, which is entirely run on and sustained by petulant outrage and kind of manufactured controversies. And it relies on a star system, which itself is kind of vulnerable to constant feuding and infighting. And and I think people have to work really hard, especially when they're not particularly talented or interesting to kind of <laughs> keep, keep things going. And Laura Loomer has really, you know, she's one of these people where uh, the mod, the kind of, you know, intrepid alternative journalism she does is pretty much just like, walking around public places and getting yelled at. She's more of a performance artist than a, a journalist. Well, I mean, it's stuff like after the Vegas shooting. I think it was her that went to um, Las Vegas police police HQ and started asking a bunch of questions. And they were like, Miss, can you please like get out? And, you know, she's like, what are they hiding? You know, like, which like some random stranger walks into yeah. the police station with a camera and like, I demand answers. And can you believe the Las Vegas police, you know, weren't keen to chat? Was she the one who interrupted? that Shakespeare in the Park <laughs> performance. That was her. You remember, yeah. like, I think in 2017, Shakespeare in the Park did one of the history plays where they just put, you know, an orange wig on yeah. on the king and That's turned right. him into Donald Trump, and she, she interrupted it. So she handcuffed herself to Twitter HQ, and... She, and she is, you know, at, at last report, we've been monitoring the situation closely, and at last report, she was threatening to uh, pee-pee in her pants, um, <laughs> well, if need be. Because Twitter... To, to own the libs. Twitter, I, I thought this was pretty funny. They said they're not going to press charges against her, and they're just going to let her stay there uh, for as long as she wants and i think she said she doesn't have the key anymore so i haven't checked she could still be there and i think this is this is great because you know these big cities are so gentrified now that they don't have a lot of the, the, those those characters those those fun tourists <laughs> this fun like local color keeps getting shoved out of these cities and you know i'm kind of hoping she stays there like forever and her supporters will come and, you know, give her food and water and, and maybe give her a bedpan and she'll just she'll just stay there forever and she'll become sort of a local landmark around around Twitter HQ. Anyways, I'm going to continue my hunger strike for, I mean, 10 to 15 more minutes or however long it takes us to finish. Recording. Obviously not a, uh, a, a thirst strike because you've just cracked open another cold one. My solidarity only goes so far. I want my I want my Twitter. So left of the dial. <laughs> well, that that's us right here. In 2004, in an attempt to break the conservative stranglehold over the airwaves, the Rush Limbaugh's, the Sean Hannity's, a group of liberal commentators, comedians, and investors got together to create an alternative, a place for ideas that you don't normally hear, not just on the airwaves, but in the mainstream media, a truly dissenting voice, and that was... Air America, an ambitious attempt to create a liberal alternative. The, I think, symbolic figurehead of the network was Al Franken, who you'll recall was enjoying sort of a career renaissance at this time. He just published his book, Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them, which was kind of on the vanguard of the resistance at the time. Did, did you have that book? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, I, I did. I did not have it, I'm proud to say. Yeah, and you might remember that 
part of the controversy around that was that Fox News actually sued the book because the subtitle of it was a fair and balanced look at the right. Mm-hmm. And they sued that it was violating their copyright. Uh-huh. And obviously it was, it was, I think, literally laughed out of court. Right, and, right. And, you know, he and Bill O'Reilly had... Well, because didn't uh, he have another book that was like... Uh, the Truth with Jokes? No, what was the one that was like... Oh, there was Rush, Rush Limbaugh, Limbaugh is a big, big fat idiot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but yeah, uh, Bill O'Reilly hated him and they had a long-running feud. So, you know, Al Franken and Michael Moore were kind of the vanguards of the resistance at what this a, time. What a terrifying thought. He had their sort of flagship uh, noon hour show, The O Franken Factor. Uh, Great. A name that's uh, funny maybe the first time you hear it and the then gets steadily of. less less yeah, clever. It's diminishing returns. <laughs> uh, but there are other people on the network. Uh, Janine Garofalo and, and your pal Sam Cedar. Yeah, Hope. I actually hadn't realized that uh, Sam got his start in this. I mean, the show is the majority report and, and he's uh, he's still on. And you might not have known that Janine Garofalo was the original co-host of it. I didn't know. I've actually been on the majority report. Uh, did you meet Janine Garofalo? I did not. You know who else was on the Majority Report? Tim Robbins. I found that out from this documentary. <laughs> well, that that was great. I mean, we'll talk about um, some of the some of the great bits of uh, broadcasting history. But I like the one where it was just it was Tim Robbins and Janine Garofalo talking to Janine Garofalo's, I guess, con- conservative, conservative dad, dad in Florida or something. Yeah, that, that's the scary stuff. The right doesn't want you to hear. There's also Mark Marin who hosts a morning show morning sedition so that's two shows that we've was that had. was that the name of his show yeah morning sedition <laughs> very that, seditious that's two shows we've had where the title is a parody of another show uh-huh uh, Mark Marin at this time was simply kind of a, a C-stream stand-up comedian and not yet the I, host of WTF with Mark Marin. we get we get to see his stand-up and the jokes are things like uh I, I, I think uh, George W. Bush is the right president to lead us to the end of the world. Uh, yeah, I think he'd do that uh, very coldly and, uh, and efficiently. You know? Yeah, so, you know, not, not very good stuff. There's also Randy Reed, who hosts a show. I can't remember what it's called, but didn't we see an ad with her where it's her and it says the left stuff? Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, uh, one of these things, your point you, you made, like, so many of these things only work like they're just the exact inverse of a phrase on the right or something like that, which I, I think we'll get to this later, but I think that speaks to one of the problems with Air America that was evident from the film. And you might be thinking, well, this does not sound like a very diverse lineup, and uh, it's not. And whenever we see a boardroom or a pitch meeting or anything, it's very white, predominantly male. There is one black host that mm-hmm. we see, and it's Chuck D. Uh-huh. Also, just not honestly, it doesn't seem very diverse in terms of it, it feels very New York with like the diversity yeah. being provided to a lesser extent, like L.A., Chicago and Portland. You know, it's, it's not very... representative of the full sort of diversity of the left coalition no. such as it is. So no. or, uh, or I mean, I mean, this sounds ridiculous to say in relation to Air America, but like literally any influence from. Marxist, let alone like social democratic ideas or anything. It's just like it's called left of the dial, but it, it, I mean, it really was in the truest sense just a liberal network. I think mm-hmm. that needs to be underscored. There are several ideas that we see recurring on the broadcast because we see a fair amount of footage of, you know, Air America broadcast from the, the first year. Magic at work. A question that is often posed is where are the WMDs? 
Got him there. I mean, it makes you realize that had George W. Bush found WMDs, the whole liberal movement at this time would have just collapsed. What would the talking point have been? It'd be like, why didn't you find them quicker? Or like, Kerry would have found them in the first week or something (laughs) like that. If you'd have sent more troops, we would have discovered them faster. There's that George W. Bush is dumb, that he is a liar, that Fox News is a liar, and that we're, we're getting the truth out there. And also that Ralph Nader is bad. And I, I think one of the most cringeworthy scenes of Awful. the movie is, I think on the first day of broadcast, right? It's on Randy Reed's show where she interviews Ralph Nader and she doesn't interview him. In fact, she says she's not interviewing him. She, she simply yells at him. And to his credit, he hangs up. You know, I felt a, a real pang of sympathy for, for Nader here because... It's the launch of this liberal network, and the first, you know, the the thing they at noon they think they think the thing they lead with. Uh-huh. At noon they launched with Franken, uh, with the old Franken factor, uh, <laughs> and they had Michael Moore on, and they talked to Al Gore on the phone. And Michael Moore apologizes to Al Gore <laughs> for supporting for- Nader. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then they have Nader on. And she just abuses him and hectors him and says, I, yeah, I'm not interviewing you. I'm, I'm pissed at you, you know? Yeah, so she just wants to yell at him. And then after Nader hangs up and they go to commercial, people are coming into... And they're just the like... Liquor. Man, man the, the phone is ringing off the hook. You really don't know politics. If you think that the Democrats are going to vote with an independent president, you're out of your mind. They've got a national party. yourself to epithets. I don't deal with someone who doesn't allow me to talk. And if you want your guest to close up on you on the first day of you just keep telling you're me. over-talking, you're filibustering, you keep saying today. They've heard you say that a thousand times, but you won't answer the question. Say, say he does. See, there's a problem. And I am pissed, and I don't, you know, I'm not interviewing Ralph Nader. I'm mad at Ralph Nader. I've been ra- mad at Ralph Nader since 2000. And i got news for you. If Ralph Nader became the president of the United States, where does he go to get his bills passed? Does he go to the Republicans? Does he go to the Democrats that he just beat? One of the things that occurred to me here is that so much about this is just aping the style of Fox News or whatever, or kind of right-wing talk radio. Um, and I, I guess in the most kind of, um, in the straightest interpretation of what this media project was, that's what it is. It's like, what if we did right-wing talk radio I mean, they would say from the left, but really from a kind of metropolitan liberal perspective. What if we did that? And I guess, you know, that's kind of premised on various assumptions liberals rather sanctimoniously tend to have about themselves. Like, as liberals, we're too nice and we don't, we we lead with facts and we need to lead with emotion and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so it's kind of a response to all those themes that recur in what passes for kind of, um, you know, liberal introspection. But I don't think that they're fully successful in aping the things about right-wing talk radio that are constructive to the right and to the Republican project. Um, Namely, if you listen to right-wing talk radio or, uh, I mean, kind of broadly speaking, any of this kind of increasingly feral, reactionary, terrifying right-wing media infrastructure, they will attack Republican politicians all the time. Mm. When the Tea Party thing happened in 2010 and all those new, uh, you know, fanatics came to Washington, within a year or two, you know, the whole media infrastructure that had made that happen was attacking them for not being reactionary enough. Mm -hmm. And guess what? 
the Republican Party transfigured into something even uglier and more reactionary. And guess what? It kept winning, kept winning over and over again. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Democrats kept being magnanimous and the Republicans kept winning. And that's not really what we see Air America doing. And I think this is something that has really befallen a lot of similar liberal efforts. And it's a problem that we kind of, I think, witnessed again and again when we revisited the films of Michael Moore, you know. When Republicans build stuff like this, they use it to drive their ideological project forward and to, you know, hold their own figures to account. And when liberals try to do the same, it's predominantly about disciplining the base and bringing them into line. So they lead with... We're going to punch Ralph Nader. Yeah, and I'm so sorry that I did this experiment with Ralph Nader, this Mm. youthful indiscretion. And and the network, you know, we see some of the personalities really do think that they're just their job. You know, I mean, they talk about, you know, we have this beautiful dream of taking, you know, the radio back for whatever. But, you know, their job is to elect John Kerry president. And some Mm -hmm. of them explicitly understand that. Like, it's clear for some of them there's really nothing wider at work like it is a kind of an anything but bush type mm-hmm. of project it's very much a very much shades of slacker uprising happening there's a whole section on election day where Rondi reed is saying something like when john Kerry wins tonight and he will tonight uh, the sky's the limit we're gonna change the world and it's like change the world to what how no sort of coherent vision has emerged for what you want the world to mm. be Um, And what happened the last time you had a Democratic president in? Did Mm. he change the world? No. Well, he fixed welfare. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Got those lazy working class, (laughs) those those black single mothers. He got them into work where they belonged. And then, uh, you know, in four years, another Democrat came in and uh, and he changed the world. (laughs) Yeah, he changed the world by uh, figure transformative figures like, uh, you know, Timothy Geithner and Larry Summers, you know, back where they belonged at the uh, commanding heights of power. So I hate to say this, but like watching this movie was horseshoe theory in action because as Election Day came around and all of these people like <laughs> Al Franken and Randy Rhodes are so like cocky about this. Look, listen, he's going to win and, yeah. and we're going to shellac them and yeah. we're going to be smug. I'm watching this thinking, oh man, you have no idea what's coming. Let me drink those liberal tears. I was on the edge of my seat because I couldn't remember who won Ohio in 2004. (laughs) So then then it cuts to the next day after the election where they have their their broadcasts, which are very extreme, I think. Some of their best work. Where they're just letting the contempt fly. And it's not it's not contempt at George W. Bush. It's contempt at this stupid country. Yeah, yeah. It's like these, it's like these... we were offered tolerance and we chose intolerance. We were offered peace and we chose what well, you weren't offered peace. No, it's like, John we, Kerry did not run. We were peace. offered wisdom and we and they're talking about John Kerry as if he's fucking Demosthenes instead of just some like corporate Democrat. I mean, does anybody remember what he campaigned on? I, re- well, I remember watched that, his debates. Well, I remember that he won three Purple Hearts. Yeah. There was that. He was going to manage the war. And <laughs> That's he, right. Yeah. He's he going to bring the international more, more partners allies on in on it. It's gonna, it was going to have like more high profile countries than like the Federated States of Micronesia and the Coalition of the Willing. So what would have happened if John Kerry had won? What would Air America have looked like, do you think? I think it would have been... It would have been it would have been like worse. the Daily Show. Well, it, after twenty because it would have been because it would have stuck to its what I think kind of underneath it all was the mission of a, at least you know a lot of its leading hosts, which was defending Democrats and 
something we've seen again and again is that for a lot of mainstream liberals, institutional power, whatever it does, is fine as long as it's their side doing it. It's like it's like drone strikes, if we're even allowed to talk about them, are fine if there's like a nice family in the White House. Kerry would have continued the war. In fact, you know, it's quite possible like the surge would have happened, you know, things like that. Um, and they would have just pivoted to defending that. And they would have been like, um, well, this is a good guy telling us we have yeah, to do they it. Would have, so. They would have said, you know, your cowboy president didn't send enough troops in and he quit, created a quandary and we're cleaning it up. That's yeah. what they would have done. One of the reasons I stopped watching The Daily Show after Obama was elected was because it was frustrating viewing because if Obama would, would do a flub or do something do something that Jon Stewart disapproved of, his line of attack would be, well, that was bad, but look at what Sean Hannity said about yeah. it. There, there would have been a lot and of that how stuff. how hypocritical it was to, compared to what he said in 2004 in this clip we dug up. There, there would have been a lot of that stuff, too. There it would have been a lot of sort of defending, you know, the Kerry administration by proxy. So even if not defending it uh, on the terms that I just suggested, defending it by, you know, attacking something Rush Limbaugh said, you know, with its own with its own logic and that it, kind of stuff. Yeah, like kind of in the same way that because its its politics are so sort of shallow and its politics only exist in relation to George W. Bush, it as an enterprise only exists as a rebuttal to Fox News and Rush Limbaugh. Well, what was the slogan again for the network? It's it's, it's oh, quite it, it's quite drab. It's like the the slogan was something like you know news commentary and satire. ideas you won't hear anywhere else. And it's interesting because you know if they if they had just gone with left of the dial, that would have been a much better slogan. Yeah, shorter and it communicates what it is. Uh-huh. I mean, the slogan they had could have been... It's ideologically uh, it, neutral. It, it, it could have been Rush Limbaugh's slogan. Yeah, I know? mean, it's like saying, um, you know, a, a sideways glance at the news or something yeah. like that. It's very non-committal, And I think it's because for at least many of the people we see in this film, liberalism seems more of an affectation. You know, it's like a cultural affectation uh, than it is... A coherent set of politics like okay John Kerry is going to change the world what's the what's the animating vision like I said as as the film was starting like if you're going to start any network that calls itself left wing I mean if you don't have some kind of a labor perspective I don't know what that's yeah worth like that's one of the one of the starting points I mean even was there a feminist program on on Air America was there a program that talked in you know serious fashion about race or i we don't certainly not in this film we don't really see any of that we we see kind of the same you know hallowed liberal talking points repeated over and over again which i guess like you know i've listened to a lot of right-wing talk radio and that's that is what they do it's oh the there same. is there is one more idea i forgot to mention uh, what's that which is these these fundamentalist christians who are holding their bibles and and right. they don't they've taken over the once great republican party and the really, party of lincoln and really they're the dangerous ones <laughs> oh there was one more piece of marketing that we saw in the movie that i really liked which was a poster for air america it was it was the shape of the united states and it had al franken's face in it uh, and i like like whatever that was trying to communicate because it's, it's like, is it suggesting that Al Franken, like, are we supposed to be kind of like surprised to see Al Franken, this anti-establishment guy, this sort of subversive voice, his face in the United States? Well, this is one of the hallmarks of 
of liberalism. And I think one of the things that uh, I forget the name of the article, but, you know, Nathan Robinson had this great piece, um, I think a couple of years ago where, you know, he, he, he pointed out that one of the biggest differences between left wing and liberal posturing is that liberals will say, uh, you know, they, what they'll do is they'll take these kind of right wing categories, these, these familiar bits of right-wing rhetoric, and they'll say, we're the people that really embody this. So the Democrats are the real party of fiscal responsibility. They're the party that really loves the troops, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the left will offer some kind of counter-narrative or just just some narrative that's distinct from that, a narrative of of its own. I think it would have been funny if instead of seeing Al Franken's face projected on the entire United States, you just saw his face, a little bit of his face in New York, a little bit yeah. of his face in California. Massachusetts. Yeah, and may- maybe Chicago, sort of, the city. Sort of uh, a few parts of Maine. Yeah, and then you, you, you kind of had to guess who it was. Also, the idea that Al Franken is this kind of like subversive anti-establishment figure. I mean, you know, th- this guy who was on Saturday Night Live, who, you know, friend yeah. of the Clintons. Well, um, I mean, the, the anti-establishment <laughs> thing, I mean, I think we've seen this. You know, we saw this throughout the Bush presidency, and we're kind of seeing it now too, right? Um, having Republican administrations in power, you know, it allows some people who have sometimes just totally incoherent politics, or sometimes just very vanilla politics, it affords them at least a kind of temporary, you know, Elon, where they can pretend that they're, you know, radicals fighting a war against, uh, you know, whatever the Putin, ta- you know, the Putin-occupied Trumpian <laughs> deep state or whatever it is, when actually they're just like totally generic Democrats or liberals that don't really have any kind of uh, systemic critique of power or anything like that. And then when their side gets in, you know, the same things can happen again and they're just fine with it. Folks, you and I know that the radical right wing of the Republican Party has taken over not just the White House, the Congress, and increasingly the courts, but even and perhaps most insidiously, the airways. And we know that they are lying, lying without shame, lying with impunity safe in the knowledge that there is no watchdog with a platform large enough to call them on their willful untruth. Someday we will find that watchdog. Until then, I will have to do. Something you mentioned while we were watching this, one of the prevailing, I guess, ideas of Air America is that the wrong facts, incorrect facts, are getting out there in the airwaves. And we need one one station that will get the right facts out Mm -hmm. you know the 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 true facts and of course these facts always sort of default to whatever the uh metropolitan liberal consensus is that's right um and you know i was reminded of i saw obama on david letterman's netflix show and uh (laughs) it's a real hour of quality viewing i'm sure i mean you know as a as a lifelong david letterman fan i i kind of forced myself to watch two or three episodes of the show and then i thought i don't know if i can really do this but obama said something like one of the problems right now is we're living in different fact ecosystems so people who listen to Fox News get a much different world of facts than they get from NPR. Right. Those were the two examples he used. Right, sure. And later the in the... So, the solution yeah. is is we take a bit of Fox and we take a bit of NPR. <laughs> well, later in the interview, he talked about his first year in office and he said one of the things he was proud of was that within a year or, or within a year and a half of being in office, they were adding jobs to the economy. Right. So that's, I guess, objectively a fact. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what are those jobs, right? Yeah. Are those good jobs? Are they permanent jobs? Are yeah. they contract jobs, part-time jobs? 
So, you know, that's an example of how the facts aren't enough. Well, you need qualitative analysis on top of the mm. on top of the facts. I mean, it's the same when people talk about kind of deficits and government debt and things like a, a fact by itself without some kind of qualitative framework for thinking of it doesn't really mean a lot. And I think Trump understands this, mm-hmm. you know, the the fact that he's I shouldn't say the fact <laughs> that he is <laughs> lying constantly uh-huh. or bending reality to suit his own narrative yeah. is part of his appeal, obviously. Uh-huh. And, you know, Daniel Dale, who's a reporter that I admire quite a bit. Yeah. He, Fre- friend friend of uh, the cities, our city, Toronto, yeah. from uh, from the Rob Ford era. He has that very popular column where every day he enumerates all of the facts that Trump got wrong or lied yeah. about. And it's usually like, I don't know, 20, 30, it's a lot 80 of, it's facts. It's a lot of facts. A lot of the bad facts, folks. And I mean, on the one hand, I'm, I I admire the effort that he puts into it. And it's it's good. Somebody needs to do this. There needs to be like a public record of like, yeah. the, the president of the United States served for this many days and this is how many lies he told. Yeah. And it's, it's, it is good that he is doing it. Um, but <laughs> but like at some point it sort of becomes a monument to its own uselessness right well, I, what i don't understand is it seems like a lot of the people who kind of relentlessly consume the the trump lying stuff they they seem surprised that trump lies about stuff and they and yeah, they seem to be still. able to they, what they're outraged just at, at the fact of the president of the united states lying you know, as if that's some novel thing. It's like, uh, I mean, does does anyone remember the weapons of mass destruction? Uh, to, <laughs> yeah. to, just to go air America. I did not have sexual we, relations we, with that woman. <laughs> uh, we, we to just to go full air America for a second. I don't think we found where are those weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. You know. So there's this kind of uh, this speech about how the you know there's so much untruth and there's so many lies and and pe- people need light light to be shone in the darkness and they need the facts and this I think really sums up the ethos of Air America as we as we see it in the film which is one that I think a lot of liberals still cleave to and it's as you said like there seems to be this belief that facts exist independently of any kind of ideology or more qualitative way of looking at the world and so there's just this assumption that the truth default you know the truth has a liberal bias is which is a phrase i remember really making i think stephen colbert might have 2004 said that, yeah. or something right so you know for these people the project is if you just correct the facts battle the battles won and i was remembering that uh Oh, one of those guys, one of Barack Obama's sort of, you know, 500 deputy communications directors that has a book out this year. <laughs> um, you know, they did a reading of it on on Chapo, right, where he was talking about, uh, you know, this really exciting project they had where, you know, they realized there was a lot of misinformation about the president. So what did they do? Well, uh, you know, they came out with this website. And what did the website do? It just had the facts. It gave you the facts. So you could mm-hmm. be armed with the facts when you're arguing with your you know, stupid, ignorant, disgusting conservative family members at the Thanksgiving dinner table, and you can beat them over the head with yeah. the facts, you know? I also liked that Peter Dow website where they <laughs> give you facts. And right. Well, right. I mean, that, okay. verification Well, that code. is Verit. Verit, uh, yeah. Friend, friend and sponsor of the show. Um, where you could, you, know, you could search the verification code to find out if, if it was an actual fact or if it was Russian propaganda. That's right, right. But I mean, that is like the facts thing on steroids, <laughs> right? That is like liberal smugness, yeah. just so turbocharged. But I think that speaks to one of the real the real problems with this is 
this assumption that the sort of default political position is just a sort of like corporatist center left kind of, you know, liberalism that kind of is reminiscent of or resembles, you know, the chatter you hear at a, you know, Manhattan cocktail party or something like that. Because frankly, that it is a minoritarian political position. It doesn't represent the values of the majority of, I mean, the Democratic Party base, let alone Americans. Like, it, there's just not enough of a constituency for it. Uh, but beyond that, it's it's not... You know, as we've discussed, I don't think it's really like an ideological position. Like there's no kind of real project there. It is just kind of a an abridged version of the sort of like institutional aspirations of a certain strata of like the, I don't know, liberal professional class. And that guess what? That's not like a viable political coalition or frankly, a, a desirable one. There's a lot more in the film than just politics, though. There's also uh, internal politics. <laughs> From its first week on air, Air America is in desperate financial trouble. The the, the tone of the film is great because the first, uh, and actually we should say, the film itself is actually very well done. I quite enjoyed Cause, it. Because yeah. it's got that D.A. Pennebaker style like yeah. distance and it's just, you're just observing what's happening. And, and it's kind of a, you know, uh, a gonzo style, you know, where it's just, it's just a camera following people around. And the tone of the film in the first kind of 20 minutes is so different than the rest of it because it's like... 10 days till, you know, airtime. There's excitement days, in the air. You know? It's like, we're going to do something big. We're going to do something beautiful. Yeah. And then and then, and then, then it just, it goes on the air and, you know, uh, it scores a few hits, you know, takes Ralph Nader down a, a notch at last. And, uh, wow, lock up your sacred cows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, there's just this, like, near financial implosion. That occupies most of the rest of the movie. I think the first round of checks bounces. And because the checks bounce... Air America immediately loses its affiliates in Chicago and Los Angeles, which... Not important. Yeah. <laughs> and so there are many scenes of their money men, you know, being on the phone with their investors saying, uh, uh, we, uh, we don't know what's going on. Please, please help us out. And there's a scene where uh, one of the investors ta is talking to the staff and he tells the filmmaker, this is not for, you know, don't record this. And the filmmaker just like covertly holds the camera behind their legs or something and you get to see the whole scene it's pretty difficult to watch i mean you can imagine a lot of these people especially kind of you know forget the big personalities but a lot of the kind of um the lower level you know the technicians and stuff imagine how excited they were to tell their friends you know oh, i got a job at this new network and it's going to change the face of radio and mm -hmm. things like that um and then like Within a few days, it's like, oh yeah, my paycheck bounced. Like I have no money, and even even this, it wasn't just them that was that was affected. It was like Franken. I don't think got paid. You know, like mm -hmm. the the big the big names. There was no money for any of them. Mm -hmm. Another thing I liked about the movie was Mark Maron, uh, who I think the movie gives a, a very unsparing portrait of. He's kind of a prima donna, isn't he? He's yeah. really like he's yelling at people, and he uh, chastises someone for stepping on his joke. Um, and he is saying stuff to the camera like, if it wasn't for all these these fuck ups, we would be we would be sailing by now. We, you know, Al Franken is I think actually I think in less of the movie than I hoped he would be. Uh -huh. uh, disgraced future senator Al Franken. Uh -huh. I was kind of hoping to get a little bit more uh, behind the scenes dirt from him. I missed the Franken thing at the time, so this is one of those you know, Michael and us subjects that's obvious, but I'm not as qualified to speak about it because unlike Michael Moore, I just wasn't immersed in the Franken corpus at the time. But 
I don't you understand. Don't get it. <laughs> I don't really get it. I mean, um, I mean, he just seems to exhibit all of the worst tendencies of of that liberal milieu, and I don't. And he's not. It doesn't seem particularly funny. I don't know what the thing is. Like Michael Moore, at least had this kind of working class background. He had a he had a, an aesthetic that was particular to him. He actually did take some some sort of programmatic ideological positions. He had a an awareness of class, and Franken doesn't seem to have any of that. So what you have to understand is that most people didn't know what the left was at this time. <laughs> and and the idea of a liberal seemed very exotic. And Ugh. Al Franken was... What a dark time. Al Franken was funnier than most, uh, so, which means he was funnier than Rachel Maddow. I don't know who were... Who were Paul Krugman. Oh, yes. Noted comedian <laughs> Paul Krugman. He was, he was much funnier than people like that, and he... You know, I'll give you that comedian, SNL comedian Al Frank is probably funnier than economics Nobel laureate Paul Krugman. I'll give you that one. And we were all tired of watching Paul Krugman get his ass handed to him by Bill O'Reilly <laughs> in TV debates, <laughs> and it was fun to watch Al Franken go on TV and make fun of Bill O'Reilly to his face. That's what we had back then. That was so. That was like the two, the early two thousands, late nineties version of like Ben Shapiro totally destroys vegan oh, SJW. Yeah. It was like watch as Al Franken owns Rush Limbaugh with pure facts, uh, like actually <laughs> though, yeah, yeah, and and it's like. The, the kind of, uh, you know, libidinal fantasy that's being carried out for liberals is, like, being able to go home for Thanksgiving and finally not getting railroaded by, like, you know, the mythic racist uncle or whatever because you're, you're armed with the facts. Mm. And I read Nexus transcripts that proved that not only was he kind of a liar, but like, like a pathological liar. And his response was, shut up! Shut up! You've had your 35 minutes, shut up! And I'd only spoken for 20, so I can't even tell you to lie without sh- or to shut up without lying. So the midterms are over, and uh, 2020 is heating up. All the, the players are getting put on the board. You got uh, uh, Gentleman Joe Biden. John Kerry was speculating yesterday. Jo- Friend of the show. Jo- John Kerry's talking Will about Will Al Gore it. run again? I hope so. <laughs> uh, Will be- Joe Biden run for the third time? I Probably. There's uh, Elizabeth Warren. There is Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders possibly in the mix. And of course, there's the new rising star Beto O'Rourke. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to talk, you know, we don't need to talk too much about, you know, the 2020 Democratic primaries. And I'm sure we will down the road. Inevitably, I'm going to have to, you know, think a lot about them and write about them and such. But but something is has kind of recurred a few times now. There's been a few news cycles like this, and it's really pissed me off. You know, so Beto O'Rourke, I've noticed, has just seamlessly slipped into discussions about, you know, the net, you know, the, he's being, he's in the Nate Silver polls. He's in, you know, and something similar happened after Congressman Kennedy gave the Democratic response to the State of the Union. I remember a wave of op-eds in kind of the Globe and Mail and in kind of similar equivalent American publications the next day. There was a great piece I remember in the Globe and Mail. Just really, this is why I'm a regular consumer of the mainstream media. And it was all about how Democrats forget about all this Bernie Sanders, you know, this Elizabeth Warren, all this kind of... This anti-corporate bullshit. This is the future of your party. A guy named Kennedy. 
What does he stand for? Does it matter? No, it doesn't. You know, and it's, you know, they're, it's happening again with O'Rourke. And I don't want to pick on him specifically. I mean, what do we even know about him? You know? We know that he, we know that he's a friend of APAC, which I think is a significant right. uh, mark against him. But uh, I think that there is this tendency uh, among some liberals where they just, they, they just see the shiniest new thing. And it's like, oh, Beto O'Rourke looked like a fam. Like, and they just want... They just want to kind of push push a button. Okay, fine. If let's take seriously for a moment the premise that Beto O'Rourke, who just ran an unsuccessful, I mean, an uphill battle that was unsuccessful for the U.S. Senate. Let's take seriously that he's going to run. Like on what? Why? Like that's on, on hope and change. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> but I mean, how many times do people need to learn the lesson that that? sort of a, a, a vague apolitical sense of goodwill and the negation of something bad, the kind of institutional negation of something bad is not a viable political program. Like if you didn't learn that with Obama, I don't know what's going to... I feel as if the discourse keeps, you know, returning again and again to these these same themes. I saw a Joe Kennedy Jr. I think it's Joe. I can't remember which, what the name of this particular Kennedy is. I saw him in the Boston Globe yesterday, and it's like Joe Kennedy is advocating a, a new ideology uh, that he wants Democrats to advocate. He's calling it moral capitalism, and it's oh. like. This is like a, a corporation relaunching a kind of, you know, an unsuccessful product over and over and over again. And all the PR agents just scurrying around to tell us how exciting this new version of the exact same thing is. I don't understand, even even if you're not going to uh, buy into the Bernie Sanders movement or, or anything further to the left than that, even if you're not a card-carrying or particularly motivated member of the left... Why is it so hard for Democrats, any Democrats in the mainstream, to even begin to articulate something that just doesn't sound like the same thing? Why can't there be something that, sure, it's wishy-washy and it's not enough, but it's at least kind of a programmatic, like, center-left platform? Because there's a significant number of Democrat voters who don't want that. There are a lot of reasons that certain Democrats don't like Bernie Sanders, but one of them is because they find him exhausting <laughs> because what he's proposing is hard work. When Obama was president, you didn't have to worry because you had a, you had a smart guy at the helm who knew the dirty reality of politics and he was there to tell you nothing could be done he was a nice smart guy to be a soothing presence yeah and people just want to feel normal mm -hmm. you know there was that famous sign that somebody had at the women's march i think it was where it said if hillary was president we'd be at brunch right now right it's like i'm sure you would be which, which sums it up yeah, i mean yeah. uh you know obama of course had horrible policies with yeah. refugees and immigrants as well yeah, yeah. Uh, but because he was at the helm it was it was okay he knew it was all right you can, people, you can drink your double latte yeah. guilt-free yeah and people don't want to <laughs> think about sorry stuff. to sound like rush limbaugh but I, I mean come on something that unites trump and bernie sanders is that they raise issues in people's minds that people don't want to think about i guess i agree with that mostly but i'll just return to this you know bernie sanders even if you don't uh, like him, there is a coherent theory of political change there. Right. You know, I don't think that there is any theory of political or social change except kind of the vaguest, mostly kind of 
you know, self-satisfying, like emotive narrative around, uh, you know, mainstream Democrats. People, as you said, they want to be told that we we are better than this and we will yeah. rise above this. And, and if when, you work hard, you can <laughs> rise in the ranks. And when and they go low, we we go high. You know, yeah. you, you see that. There's nothing that can't be settled by, you know, getting get cracking open some cold ones and ha- <laughs> rolling up your sleeves and having a conversation. You about see it. this with... Um, you know, another genre which is kind of similar. I mean, you have these ludicrous takes about how, you know, we just need another Kennedy in the White House, or we need this shiny new politician from Texas, or whatever it is. But an even better version of the genre, in my opinion, is the one where it's like, you know, we need an anti-establishment outsider like uh, Michael Bloomberg oh, yeah. or Mark Zuckerberg, which mm-hmm. remember that whole news cycle about yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg? And he like, he visited New Hampshire and people are like, maybe, maybe he's thinking about it. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, uh, we need uh, Bezos or whatever it is. There's Oprah. These... Yeah, Oprah, right. It's so interesting to me, the the kind of political and psychological terrain that occupies. Well, those people are trying to beat Trump as, at his own game. It's like, okay, the people want a billionaire. Let's give them a, a good billionaire. <laughs> Warren Buffett should run. Yeah. Has anyone written that take? Maybe I could write it under a pseudonym oh. and like get a good yeah. fee writing for like the Wall Street Journal or something. <laughs> I actually do hope John Kerry runs again. I think that would be really funny. Well, it would be great. And if Hillary for, Clinton runs again, that would be really it would, funny. It, John, a John Kerry presidential campaign would be so good for the, for Michael and us. And Al Gore would be like, I mean, we're going to start doing five episodes a week if Al Gore runs. (laughs) Through my life, I've always tried to keep the faith. When I was a young man, I volunteered for the army and went to Vietnam. Tipper and I have been married for 30 years. I've kept faith with my country and I've made the environment my cause. One more news item. Uh, We lost Harry Leslie Smith this week. Luke, you wrote an obit for Jacobin about him. Could you talk a little bit about what he meant to you and to the left? Yeah, so I don't know if uh, how familiar our listeners would be with uh, with Harry, but his story is a remarkable one because he was born in the early 1920s, you know, to an incredibly poor family in in Yorkshire. He really only achieved any public prominence in the final years of his life, so in his 90s. You know, he he served in the RAF, and then, you know, 70 years later, he wrote with really incredible eloquence about it. He became a a very big personality on social media, really quite an influential political commentator, especially in in Britain. You know, he gave this speech at the uh, Labour Party conference in, I guess, 2014. In 1926, he lost his older sister, Marion, to tuberculosis because this was a Britain before the National Health Service was created. This is just what used to happen to, you know, people that couldn't afford to go to the doctor. Uh, Marion, in fact, they couldn't afford to even put her up for the last few weeks of her life. So she was sent to an infirmary and was buried in an unmarked grave because they couldn't afford a funeral. That's what Britain was like for, you know, probably around 80% of the people that lived in it um, up until, you know, the welfare state was built. So what Harry did again and again was uh, remind people with you know tremendous eloquence and from kind of his wealth of experience what the world was like before uh, the welfare state and before socialized medicine in particular. And he was somebody who, I mean, despite his age, was was so engaged with, I guess, present day political concerns. Run, running through his books, and I mean, he wrote. He wrote several before he died. He wrote memoirs. You know, he just just about a year ago he came out with his last book, 
there's this theme that recurs over and over, which is kind of that, you know, social progress is very real. I mean, he was born before there was a National Health Service in Britain, and now there is one, and there still is one, despite, um, you know, a decades-long onslaught by both Tory and New Labour politicians. But these struggles have to be fought again and again. So progress is not, you know, it's not a straight line. I think this gave his message tremendous resonance. And I always felt in reading his dispatches from, you know, reading about what life was like in, you know, Barnsley, Yorkshire in 1928 or whatever, there was a tremendous contemporary relevance to them. They always seemed very um, alive to me. So he's somebody whose writing was very, uh, I don't know, very influential on me. And I found myself being very moved when, uh, when he died yesterday and when I was trying to think about what I would what I would say about that. I wouldn't say I knew him, but I, I did talk to him a few times, and uh, it was just a few weeks ago he was congratulating me on my new job. Oh, so wow. I'll, uh, I'll miss him a great deal. I'm sure when you're thinking about the, the left as it exists today, figures like that must be very important to you as being part of this, you know, continuum. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm somebody who I've never been religious. I don't come from a... I mean, my family, there was no kind of... Um, thick cultural background that was being celebrated that was something i guess i had to excavate for myself we haven't really talked about it on the show but i guess i have a sort of some kind of a british identity that i sort of have obtained by kind of actively reading about my family's history and things like that i find it's it's weird that um you know sometimes looking back at those things even people that you never new can weirdly teach you a lot about yourself and there are things there are kind of family traits that recur and things like that Mm. but because i've never really had uh that kind of background i mean the closest thing i have really is the left that's the closest thing i have to a a a tradition uh that i've been you know engaged in something that connects me to uh previous generations and 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 roots me in you know, texts and ideas and, and events in the past. Mm. And, you know, formative to my politics, uh, really the experience of the British left and, and the and the building of the welfare state, which which Harry talked about um, so, so eloquently. I'd like to do on future episodes, um, you know, I guess we've never done any Ken Loach uh, films, but I know there have been some mm-hmm. requests on, on the Patreon, uh, the, the forum, um, but you know the spirit of forty five is a is a good one to revisit. The you know this is an experience that people in a lot of countries had. Um, you know this these kind of struggles to create a basic social safety net to win rights at work things like that. Uh, but the British one just I suppose because that's just the history I read was was very important to me and uh, it was it was incredibly fulfilling to me and rewarding when I first kind of picked up that history. When I was when I was reading Harry's work and when I was reading Tony Benn's diaries and and other other kind of uh, dispatches from those generations past, reading them in the context of this world where you know these ideas were considered anachronistic, I know it meant so much to people on the left of Harry Leslie Smith's generation to see these see these ideas and these struggles kind of coming back. You know, he was a supporter of uh, of Corbyn during the uh, the 2015 leadership contest, and and remained a supporter of his. And I know, you know, that if Tony Benn had been alive still, he would he would have been a, a big supporter of Corbyn's as well. And I, I think there is a, a really important nexus binding this new kind of youthful left um, with kind of uh, 
the the older one and and certainly that's uh something that's very important for me and and very important and uh has been very formative for me and is kind of a a continuous source of nourishment for my politics it's interesting because there doesn't seem to be that in the united states i mean who are the sort of american left-wing grandfather or grandmother figures well they're not they're not as well known i mean honestly martin luther king uh, yeah, well, I mean, I mean, he's he's a well-known figure who's unfortunately very depoliticized. Honestly, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders is one of those figures. Um, but he's also somebody who has sort of emerged for a lot of people in the last four years. You know, that that's true. But I think one of the things that gives him uh, the popularity uh, that he has and the relevance that he has is because he is kind of a there was a there was a jacobin piece from uh maybe a couple years ago called you know the survivors or something and it was about how both corbin and sanders are you know they are survivors from this older radical tradition Mm -hmm. um which is so important to uh hold on to i mean i guess you know eugene debs would be a figure you know in 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 the united states is somebody that i've learned a lot about this is a fun bit of uh miscellany but if people don't know uh, in the late 70s, Bernie Sanders helped make a documentary, a radio documentary, which is on YouTube. If you just search Bernie Sanders, Eugene Debs, you can listen to this radio documentary about Debs. If you don't know about Debs, one of the most important figures on the history of the American left. And in this documentary, uh, Bernie Sanders actually plays Debs and reads his mm. oratory, which is uh, you know a lot of fun for, for people like me anyway. When I vote in the American elections, typically choose whoever reminds me most of John F. Kennedy. <laughs> uh, also, I come to this podcast primarily from a cultural perspective. And, you know, I, of course, also host a movie podcast. And when I look at the great lineage that brought me to where I am now, I think, of course, of uh, Gene Shalit with his uh, punny reviews. Or, you know, there's also Rex Reed. I don't and, even know who these people are. And uh, Lights Camera Jackson now. who's you know, this is the the grand lineage that I follow. <laughs> well, I just vote for uh, whichever candidate has the best ground game. That's my <laughs> politics. People need to hear the truth. And right now on radio, there are hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of right-wing talk radio. And there's no liberal talk radio. Let's conclude by just bringing up Air America again. I mean... Can't get enough of it. Uh, Air America obviously didn't work out. It lasted longer than I thought it would. Six years. Um, When I think of what were the successful sort of liberal things of this era, there was The Daily Show. Yeah. But but not a lot else. In terms of a liberal and or left-wing alternative to right-wing talk radio, it has sort of emerged at a, a modest scale in podcasts, I guess. You know, there's... There's your Chapo Trap Houses. Uh, there's ah yes, sir. Brett, firmly in the tradition of, of Air America, <laughs> but but it has been a more successful, I think, in its well, in its way. Sam's still going with yeah. the Majority Report. Uh, I mean, which is which is good, and oh, people should people should check out the Majority Report. A whole you know left wing podcast ecosystem has emerged, uh, and you know there's also uh, I don't know where it fits into this theory, but there is Pod Save America. Which, uh, well, to me, that is that's in the lineage of like that's the legacy of Air America's things like that. It is quite popular, though. 
Uh, yeah, well, there's no accounting for taste. Whenever there's a trend piece in the New York Times about Pot Save America, it's always, you know, meet the... Meet, meet the, the ba- plucky young... Meet the yeah. bad boys who found a way to get liberal ideas uh. onto the airwaves. You know what I love about Pot Save America is how... It's a liberal show, and they insist on having a token Republican anyway. Who turned out to be an anti-Semite. <laughs> I'm not, I guess I'm not up you on the You didn't follow lore, that but... controversy? <sighs> okay, well, l- look it up. But what was so funny about that was he, he was behind, <laughs> he funded some, he was involved in something to get anti-Soros propaganda that's, that's great. out there. So, so the whole, this whole liberal thing of needing to have like a respectable interlocutor on the right, and then that's the Just guy Just blew they up get. in their face. But, but it's so funny to me, like the idea that you, this is your, you're creating space for your supposed ideas and your politics and and those invariably include like giving space magnanimously to figures on the right because your politics are being reasonable right well exactly well it's like that piece i wrote about um the west wing you know i noted that even in their wildest fantasies like their most unconstrained fantasies liberals manage to accomplish nothing Mm -hmm. right because this is what the politics are the politics are just yeah, being reasonable, having these kind of magnanimous conversations, and they're not really about much else. You know, it was great uh, contribution uh, they made to ideas and liberalism and just the discourse was after Alexandra Ocasio Cortez toppled Joe Crowley, and they did that segment about like, let's 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 like sit back and like just you know like so let's like fist bump some of the lessons of this. You know, break and, it down, and it's break it down, and it's like you just you run you got to run on a positive message and you gotta gotta give you gotta believe in what you believe in yeah you know yeah you (laughs) i i you know i've never listened to more than a few minutes of it maybe we might do a might do a deep dive sometime but um i've never listened to any of it so i can't i I can't really comment you know i just that that type of uh liberal media project i just can't stand especially now that there are alternatives to it which are so much better like give me any 15 seconds of Chapo Trap House to any part of Pod Save America. Well, so Chapo Trap House, uh, which I have listened to, uh, I mean, if there is a difference between them and Air America, which I think there is, they hate the Democratic Party. And yeah. I think they are at their most satisfying when they're criticizing the Democratic Party. And they have a politics which is basically a, you know, Marxism. Yeah. That is, I think, coherent. Yeah. Uh, is not simply tied to the party line of a political party. And, you know, it really goes beyond, I don't want to be too Chapo-centric here, because I think this applies to the whole broader left media ecosystem, whether it's, you know, my employer or current affairs or other magazines that I write for, you know, but really like these, these bigger failing New York times. (laughs) (laughs) No, but these, these kind of uh, left-wing alternative publications Um, You know, I was speaking to some journalism students recently, and I was talking about how uh, when I was 14 years old and I was kind of thumbing through pages of Chomsky idly, like in Stratford, Ontario, the left-wing magazine, as I saw it at the time, that I would go to was Adbusters, right? And Adbusters was something that... I guess superficially... Take a drink if you're playing the drinking game. <laughs> Go ahead. What? Adbusters? Yeah, Adbusters. <laughs> Adbusters, you know, it was something that uh, I guess you, superficially you could say it has, you know, some similarities aesthetically to present day left publications because it was, you know, had this very distinctive aesthetic. It was kind of, uh, it was vibrant in a kind of a lugubrious way, if that makes any sense. 
I thought of his left wing because it was sort of broadly anti-corporate. And I guess I guess it was sort of rooted in that uh, late 90s kind of anti-globalization movement. But basically, in retrospect, I think it was it was fairly incoherent. Like the politics of it were not socialist. They were kind of anarcho-liberal. It was not a coherent project that was going on there. And, you know, they had this whole idea of culture jamming, which... You know, if a friend of the show, Alex Ross, was here, we could have a whole conversation with him about that. Maybe we will down the line. But, you know, now there's an alternative to that. And you have, uh, you know, a left media ecosystem, which is rooted in ideas that has a certain amount of intellectual uh, swagger, but that is also funny. You know, it's not overburdened by jargon. It's, you know, genuinely vulgar in a way that, I don't know, the you know, these libs kind of uh, dishing out the snark and the swears on, you know, uh, Air America in the, uh, you know, early 2000s. Like, I don't think, I mean, they they said that was anti-establishment. They said it was vulgar. I don't really think, you know, uh, it's, you know, the flinging, flanging GOP, you know, it's just not, it just doesn't have the same... uh... Rush Limbaugh's a big fat idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. So... There is an alternative here. It's not as if we're just punching down at these kind of uh, these old bits of liberal paraphernalia. There is an alternative to the Air America style of liberalism. You know, it's it's called Michael and us, folks. So everyone, thanks for listening, and thank you to the people who sent the nice feedback on our last uh, Patreon episode on Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory. Uh, thanks to everybody who's contributing on the forum. Uh, I think uh, it's possible, though I don't know, maybe you know, if uh, people are not actually patrons, can they post publicly on the forum? I don't know. Because you should be able to follow the Patreon without without necessarily yeah, contributing. Yeah, I think Because so. there's quite an active uh, little community there, and uh, I, you know, I just want to say we love hearing, uh, we love seeing that, we love hearing from you guys, uh, we love all the suggestions uh, that we've gotten. One such suggestion led to this episode, which I think was a lot of fun. For those who don't know, we do have a Patreon. And if you can't get enough, you know, post-irony Michael Moore content, uh, go over to patreon.com slash Michael and us. And you get two extra episodes a month. Yeah. Uh, plus some other bonus content, which we've started throwing up there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I feel like we've uh, we've really crossed the Rubicon with kind of a, a, a recent uh, novelty episode we did on the Clint Eastwood chair speech. There could be more stuff like that outside we, we put, of we the put regular that on episodes. The free, the free that was on the free speech. one, but I know that we've opened the floodgates to, you know, like all kinds of other... Should we do the Morning in America commercial? <laughs> Should we do the Daisy commercial? This is, what, this is what I mean. People are agitating for us to just do an episode on the film Rat Race. It's come up a number and of times. And that's the kind of stuff, you know, that, that I'm talking about. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. <laughs> There's only one way to find out. The bigger Michael and us nation gets, you know, the, the bigger the Deimos gets and the and, and the more uh, the more weight you guys have to make us do the episodes you want. So go over to patreon.com slash Michael and us. Uh, and until then, watch this drive. <laughs>